Hi, welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, and with me is Michael Shore. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me, Joe. You are so welcome. You are so welcome. So we are doing something new. Uh, I don't know if it's new, but we're doing something crazy for us. Right. Uh, you're a busy guy. I think we all can say you're a busy person. Would you? <laughs> would you? Yeah. I, think, I, I believe that everybody has said that. Mike Shore is a busy person. It's one of the most famous things about me <laughs> that people know about me is that I'm busy. They don't yeah, know what busy. I'm doing, but they just they have a vague sense that I'm you're, busy. You're, yeah, you're involved. You're doing a lot of stuff. So uh, to make your life easier, um, we're gonna we're, we're gonna do is we're going to for a while at least uh, start doing what we will call mini podcasts. Right? Mini. We call these mi- micro podcasts. What do you call? What do you call? <laughs> well, in classic us fashion, we didn't decide what to call it at all, and now. Now you've already thrown out two different. You should have come out strong out of the gate with like this is what we're calling we'll it. Call but it you've already mini, blown right, it. Right. It's, it's mini or late. micro. Let's <laughs> should we call it the let's call it the mini cast. Let's call it the mini cast. We're calling the mini cast. Ten uh, minutes of uh high quality podcast content. Uh sure. then we're gonna actually throw uh like a like a um an interview afterward that you uh, like, for instance, after we do this, you'll be able to hear a wonderful interview uh, that I did with uh, Jay Jaffe, where we talk about the Hall of Fame, which is very fun. Um, but we're just doing 10 minutes, and we are really literally keeping this to 10 minutes, and then we'll do a little close at the end. Uh, but that's the deal. You're excited? Are we excited about this? Can we do it? Well, here's the the only question I have is, is it literally possible to condense the 88 <laughs> minutes of nonsense that we usually engage in? Is it possible to condense that all the way down to 10 minutes? I don't know. There's so much nonsense and so much nothing. Can you can can you crunch down that much nothing into such a small amount of time? I just don't know if it's possible based on like physics. I don't know if physically it's possible. I do know that we haven't even started and we're already two and a half minutes in to this. Perfect. So we're we're already a quarter of the way through our mini podcast. We haven't even started. Well, let's thing. get to it. Let's get let's do let's it. Let's get do to the it. Well, we, all right, we're going to focus our mini podcast this week on the on the uh, Super Bowl because obviously that is coming up. Uh, but I really have sort of a specific focus, and that is uh, everybody here who who listens to this what, for whatever reason uh, knows that you went into the Jaguars Patriots AFC Championship game uh, intending fully to root for the Jaguars for any number of reasons, including the fact it's a bitter story. It's funnier. Uh, even you have grown tired of all the Patriots winning. Uh, the Jaguars are so integrated in your life because of uh, the wonderful role it plays on the good place. All of these reasons. Right. The question is, did you actually root for the Jaguars? Uh, I my my head was rooting for the Jaguars and my heart was rooting for the Patriots. I found you can't that help it was it, right? yeah, like there were, I, and I kind of anticipated this a little bit. There was no way I could actively root for my team to lose with all of my being. I really did want. I mean, as the as the Jaguars came out and took a ten point lead into the second deep into the second half, I really not only had had made my peace with it, but was starting to like really enjoy the idea that this was going to be the outcome. And then as the Patriots mounted their comeback, I just, it's just a fight or flight response. Like my adrenaline started (laughs) pumping and my amygdala took over my lizard brain took over and I just wanted to watch uh, the Patriots win. And, and I I can't say I'm unhappy that they won, but um, it's, it was a very interesting exercise in 
sort of like tribalism. Like you can intellectualize your way out of your tribe, uh, but you can't you can't emotionalize your way out of it. Like it's just it's a very hard thing to do when you've been rooting for the team and wearing the team logo since you were old enough to be aware that sports existed. That just it was impossible. Yeah, I, I find it. I actually find it pretty fascinating. We we were texting a little bit back and forth during that day, and 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 I was asking you because that was my that was my gut feeling. My gut feeling was, yeah, look, you still would have been perfectly happy if the Jaguars had won. It would have been fun. It would be funny. The Super Bowl would be uh, very different from any Super Bowl we've ever seen. All these other things. I don't think you would have been. I don't think you would have felt the way you did like as a kid when they got destroyed by the bears or something, it wouldn't have been like that, but yeah, you can't, you can't do it. I mean, right. I mean, this is, no. it's too much a part of who you are at this point uh, to, you, you can't root against your team. You just can't. No, I think you can sort of mute your interest in the team. You know, you can, you can sort of almost go neutral. You can play dead like a possum or something. <laughs> In terms of how you approach the team, but it's very, I found it very hard to actively root against them. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to the Super Bowl. I'm going to be there. I'm taking my jerk son. Wow. Uh, because he, um, I, I wasn't uh, going to go, but then I got offered to take NBC has the game this year. And so they're, right. you know, they have tickets available for, for producers and actors and stuff. So I'm actually going, it's going to be the first football game my son has ever seen. Um, but, I have to say that on the night before, uh, on Saturday, we we got I bought tickets to the Timberwolves Pelicans game, and <laughs> and I kind of am more excited for that because <laughs> I'm so into the NBA right now, and I'm kind of more excited to watch like Jimmy Butler and Carl Anthony Towns yeah. take on Anthony Davis. It's a bummer that Boogie got hurt, um, but the fact that I'm the fact that I'm that excited for that you know NBA game in early February and not quite as excited for the Super Bowl uh, is a sign of how of how muted my interest in the NFL overall actually is. Yeah, no, I I feel that. By the way, uh, just adding another chapter to your jerk son's life, uh, his f- first football game will be the Super Bowl. The I mean, Super what a- Bowl in which his favorite team is playing, yeah. And and by the way, in this in a span of now three months, he will have seen three World Series games uh, starring his favorite team. And granted, they lost, but still three World Series games and a Super Bowl uh, featuring his favorite football team. And in, in like in the from October you know, 18th to February 4th. And I those World Series games are the first World Series games I ever attended in my 42 years of existence. And, and, this, and this is the second Super Bowl I've been to, but only like the fifth professional football game or something. It's really again, I, it infuriates me. I. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so great. Look, this is what this is what you want to do as a as a father, a mother. You want your children to have opportunities that you never had. Yep. Um, but in three months for him to quadruple my life is not impressive. <laughs> it's not. It's not great. It's not. Yeah, it's yeah. not. You know, he has my kids our, he will he's he will have seen in his after his seeing his first professional football game. He will have seen his favorite team play in more Super Bowls than you have seen your favorite team play in Super Bowls because your favorite team has never played in the Super Bowl. And we'll never go. We'll never, never, ever go. All right. We're going to talk about the game here in the two and a half minutes we have left. But I didn't want to make this point. Um, You're going to see the Timberwolves Pelicans. Doesn't that still sound weird that those are NBA teams? It does. I, I was thinking about this, like stuff that we don't that were not true when we were kids. 
Like they still exist and we've gotten used certainly to Timberwolves or whatever, but it's not the same. And when you say a team name that wasn't around when you were a kid, it feels weird, don't you think? Well, it yes, and also it feels doubly weird because the name of the franchise should be the New Orleans Jazz. If oh, it was New Orleans Jazz, it would be cool. It would be the best name ever. <laughs> and Utah, the name of the Utah franchise should be the Utah something. The Pelicans. Utah. That's fine. What's fine. That called? I don't care. By the way, Pelicans <laughs> makes just as much sense in Utah as Jazz does. But like the Utah, the Utah, you know, Mount Razorback. Wires. Whatever. Or, yeah. Yeah, Who the exactly. Knows? Yeah. Uh, but so, but yes, the Pelican sounds weird and the Timberwolves sounds weird. I also still, the other day I saw online somewhere someone referenced the Minnesota North Stars and thought, man, is that a better name for a hockey team? Oh, it's so cool. Well, Minneapolis North Lakers. Stars, bring it back for goodness oh, sake. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And what? Well, Minneapolis Lakers. I mean, that's a better yeah, name. Look, the LA course. Lakers makes no sense. Makes no zero lakes sense. Lakes in LA? No, no sense. The only lakes in LA are, are man made and they're ugly. <laughs> and they're ugly. <laughs> one minute. We have one minute to break down the uh, Jaguars and, I mean, excuse me, the Patriots and the Eagles. <laughs> who, all right, who wins the game? I, I'm not just saying this. I believe the Eagles are going to win, and I don't think it's going to be particularly close. I, the pa- Yeah, the Patriots beat two. I know the Jaguars' defense is good, but for goodness sake, they beat Blake Bortles at home. They were at home and they won. They beat Blake Bortles by four points. They beat the Titans handily, but come on, it's the Titans. They didn't even deserve to be there. The uh, the Eagles played better teams. All they were the best team in football all year. And Nick Foles, it looks like he's exactly where Carson once was, if not actually slightly better. I think the final score of this game is like third. My prediction is it's like thirty-one twenty-one Eagles. But it's like 31-14 with three minutes left. And then they score at the Patriots score a late touchdown to get to within 10. That's my official call. I, I hope that's true. I, I, I think that the Patriots are probably going to end up winning. I hope that you're right and I'm wrong. Uh, but I want to say one last thing about Nick Foles. I guess he's really good. So getting quarterbacks <laughs> is really not that hard, no matter what anybody says. <laughs> well, it's like, it's like yeah, he looks really good and stuff, but he's also got a lot. That team has so many weapons. They picked up Jay Ajayi halfway through the year. No. They've got they've got like two really good running backs. They've got LeGarrett Blunt, who was the best running back on the last Patriots team that won the Super Bowl very recently, if you'll remember. <laughs> they also have a changeup back in Jay Ajayi. They've got really good wide receivers. They've got an incredible tight end. They've got an they probably have the best offensive line in football. I mean, it's a, yeah. it, it's easy to look like Nick Foles did against uh, against the Vikings when you've got a, an incredibly good roster up and down the uh, lineup no, every, at every position. No question. No question. But you have seen that that stat where they compare all of uh, Nick Foles' games versus all of uh, – all of um, uh, why am I missing his name? The other the, – Carson the, Wentz. Uh, Carson Wentz's games. And the numbers stack up like almost identical. Yeah. It's insane. That's what it's I'm weird. saying though. It's like you put a competent person in that – position with that roster and you're going to get good results because they're I mean their offensive line is amazing I my I will officially predict right now that the Patriots don't get any pressure on Foles the entire game I don't think they have they all they don't have great edge rushers except for 51 year old James Harrison Uh, (laughs) and I and their Eagles offensive line is just so good I think that's going to be the difference I think that they just can't get anywhere near Foles and I think the Eagles will be able to get to Brady yeah, I think you're right. All right, we have to end this. This is the deal. Right. So uh, we're going to go on to uh, my conversation with Jay Jaffe about the Hall of Fame. Very exciting. And uh, we'll be back afterward. All right, super excited uh, to be joined by uh, uh, a 
multiple time guest here on the podcast now, Sports Illustrated's Jay Jaffe. Jay, first of all, welcome back. Great to have you back. Hey, thanks, Joe. It's great to be back. That sounded that sounded like you totally meant it, which is great. I, do, I, do, I, do. I love to I love to talk about my Hall of Fame stuff, and when I get to talk about my Hall of Fame stuff with one of the, one of the few people who's as big as a big of a Hall head as myself, uh, it's even better. You know, two Hall of Fame nerds talking is like it's. For any other Hall of Fame nerds, assuming there are a few out there, that's the greatest thing. And for everybody else, it's like, why would you guys get a life? Just stop. I, stop yeah. with the Scott Rowland. All right, enough. <laughs> so crazy. Sorry. So crazy. All right, let's. Uh, we're really going to spend most of our effort, I think, talking about the future. But uh, I do want to talk a little bit about this year's ballot. First of all, um, you know, you and I pretty much – see eye to eye on this on on the way uh the way we think and, and you've influenced my thinking a, a great deal um how'd you feel how'd you feel about this year I mean, four guys going in chipper jones vladimir guerrero jim tomey trevor hoffman all going in we we certainly have our feelings about relief pitching and all that but generally speaking what do you think about this class yeah i i'm i'm pretty happy with this I, you know it's it's uh uh, I think a quartet is great. The fact that it's just the fourth quartet uh, in, in electoral history, but the second in four years, uh, I think, speaks to the urgency with which voters are, you know, have approached this. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's. I think it's neat that we got the highest uh, votes per ballot, uh, uh, at least of the uh, post nineteen sixty six era here. Yeah, and there was, by the way, no chance before '66 people right. were putting a lot of people on their ballots. No chance. Right. Those guys were putting like eh, Mantle, I guess. Maybe I'll put Mickey Mantle in here. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. It's and look, I, I, it would have been awesome to see to to have Edgar Martinez make it and be yes. the fifth. But I think you know if you if you understand how. Uh, the uh, the public balloting works. You had to know that uh, that 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 share was going to come down uh, by election uh, results day. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, nine people with fifty percent or more that ties a record. I think it just shows there's a there's a a lot of stratification now uh, in the voting. We've got those. You know, there was that ballot. You know, that single ballot uh, uh, of nine guys uh, that lots and lots of published ballots had. Um, it was in the double digits, like sort of almost a group thing, but it was so obvious, I think, for most people to identify nine guys. And then uh, there's a big fall off to, uh, you know, as to how people how people uh, use that 10th vote. And obviously there are variants and otherwise, but, you know, I had uh, uh, I had a ballot that uh, was went completely unrepresented. Uh, my virtual ballot went cl- completely unrepresented until the final days when I think Ken Davidoff was the only one who turned in one that matched mine. Right. And really the thing that, that – the difference between our ballots, for instance, um, is just one guy. Uh, you went with Andrew Jones, right? I mean that was right. that was the, the guy. And I think I went with Larry Walker. No, you have Walker on your ballot. I have Walker. I had Walker, yeah. Who, who are your who are your ten? I did I did not have I did not have either Vlad or Trevor Hoffman oh, because Vlad. They, Vlad. They, so, you know, which I, I'm perfectly comfortable with Vlad Vlad Guerrero in the Hall of Fame. Uh he does not do particularly well in Jaws. Right. Um and so, you know, if I'm if I'm if I'm making an argument that's based on uh, using my system as a tool, uh, he is not the best advertisement for that. Um, but you know, I don't begrudge his spot. I think it's it's really cool that he broke the second year uh, percentage uh, that uh, belonged to Roberto Alomar before, uh, and that he was the the uh, the. Uh, it's it's amazing he passed Tommy uh, in terms of uh, getting the yeah. second highest percentage of this group because Tommy was, you know, an obvious first ballot guy. Yeah, it was it was it was very interesting. And look, I I. 
I think that there are more problems with Vladimir Guerrero's overall case uh, when you compare it historically with with other uh, people in the hall because of various issues, various things uh, about the way he played. Uh, but man, he was just so much fun and such a such a credit to the game. I mean, it's you know that's 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 where it gets to be interesting. But yeah, I think that was the only difference was that I had Vladimir yeah. Guerrero on mine and you had Andrew Jones on yours. Um, and you know, look, these are these are fascinating calls that we're making now. That's that's really the thing. I mean, there there were I, I felt the same way. I felt there were nine guys that that I was super duper stoked about, you know, voting for that. I just felt like, Oh, these guys. Yes. Definite. Yes, yes, yes. I did not vote for Vladimir Guerrero his first year. I had Manny Ramirez instead. Uh-huh. And, um, and I didn't, I regretted it. I just, I just felt like Manny Ramirez, uh, you know, look, uh, we, we can discuss if we want to, I don't know if we're going to want to go into the whole PED issue again. Uh, we've done that before, but to me, the problem with with Manny is at a time when we all knew at this point, stop using right. it. Right? I mean, it's right. there's testing. Uh, it's an embarrassment to the game in a in a very public way. Uh, it's a threat to the game uh, in in various ways. To to test positive twice in this testing era is bad. It's bad, and yeah. and uh, I'm not saying it should disqualify him because I don't think it should. Uh, I think we still have to look at Manny Ramirez, although I I don't know that his numbers are going to go very far. Um, But that was – so I felt like, look, Vladimir Guerrero just – so so I had nine, and then for me it was a a question of who to put as the 10th guy. Um, How would you say that you looked at the issues ballot? Like the the, the people that you were like absolutely have to be on my ballot. Yeah, you know, I I especially felt like, okay, so I think the first thing – uh, is that I'm I'm inclusive of Bonds and Clemens. Uh, for sure. me, the, the PED issue is is one that's larger than individual players deciding to be bad actors. It's an institutional failure, and I don't think you can penalize the individuals uh, who took advantage of that before Major League Baseball had a policy in place that actually deterred, um, you know, with suspensions and testing. So they're on there. Uh, then uh, obviously Chipper and Jim Tomey, easy first ballot choices. Um, uh, the two pitchers, Messina and Schilling, easy choices for me. Yes. Edgar Martinez, uh, Larry Walker, uh, very easy choices for me based on the analytics. Uh, so that's eight. Um, if I, if I, if I think I'm counting right here, uh, then, uh, the, the other two were analytics choices for me. Um, uh, Andrew Jones, uh, and who, you know, and, uh, uh, Scott Rowland. Scott, Rowland, right? yeah. Scott Rowland's defense is just, you know, remarkable. And it's, it's rare to see, uh, the numbers and the reputation align. Uh, what I don't understand for the life of me is why, uh, Scott Rowland gets dismissed as a hitter. Uh, and that combo gets dismissed so easily. If Scott Rowland was hitting like Omar Vizquel, would he get right. 37%? Right. You know, it's just, it's like, it's, this is the problem that I wrote about in the, in, in my Hall of Fame book, the Cooperstown Casebook. It's that voters have a very, a particularly hard time, uh, acknowledging the, uh, uh, the difficulty of, of third baseman uh, to be outstanding contributors on both sides of the ball. I mean, it's, you know, he's kind of a, a Ron Santo type with better fielding numbers. Um, you know, I don't think people appreciated Scott Rowland's offense enough. 
Uh, I think they dinged him a little too much for the, for the length of his career uh, and for his injuries. Um, despite that, this is a guy who's got 70 war, you know, and, 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 a, and a pretty solid 70 war uh, and was, you know, a, a human highlight film. I think people – you know, it's, it's like people are like, no, he was never a franchise player. The Phillies offered the guy $140 million over 10 years. That's not a franchise player. Uh, look at the contract he signed with the Cardinals. It's an eight-year deal. Uh, that's not a franchise player. That's a franchise player. I mean, you know, if you've already got Albert Pujols, okay, maybe it's he's not the number one franchise player, but obviously he's a huge guy. And as for Jones, um, you know, his his fielding numbers are, are number one in, in uh, among center fielders based on what baseball reference uses, which is the combination of total zone uh, and defensive runs saved. And I know that, uh, you know, very smart people can quibble with that. Bill, J- Bill James is particularly vocal about uh, Andrew Jones, uh, the quality of his defense and the impropriety of comparing ar- across eras when you don't have the same metrics. Uh, I get that. Um uh, and, and I think uh, uh, I know Chris Dial, who does uh, the uh, one of the one of the systems that uh, uh, goes into the sabermetric portion of the Gold Gloves, uh, says that Jones's defense was overrated too. Um, okay, fine. Uh, to me, you know, we look at those the the big trio of Braves pitchers who got in uh, from the dynasty: uh, Glavin, Maddox, and Smoltz. Of those three, only Smoltz was a real strikeout pitcher. Um, the other two guys were just you know, absolute craftsmen, artists, uh, whatever you want to call it, who put a lot of balls in play. And there was no player who was who had a bigger role in uh, in snuffing out those balls in play than Andrew Jones. He was the constant for them uh, for so long and just an elite defender. And, you know, if, if I think if we if if we found out today that Andrew Jones was three or four years older than his birth than his birthday, uh, that is that is birth certificate or whatever Major League Baseball has on file uh, uh, indicates. We would understand Andrew Jones's career so much better, and, and it would be easier to float for him in the Hall of Fame. If you you know if he debuted at twenty three and was done at, at you know was done in his late thirties and done as a productive player in his mid thirties, I think we'd all understand that career pattern a lot better, uh, and we wouldn't sit there wondering what might have been. Yeah, no, I think that's one hundred percent right, I, and I want to I want to talk about. Um... All three of those guys uh, that you just mentioned, uh, when we talk about Omar Vizcal, we talk about uh, Scott Rowland, we talk about Andrew Jones, because I think there's a strong comparison to be made for all of those and sort of the weirdness of, of the voting. But uh, for one more minute, I want to spend on this year's ballot, and then we can get to that. Um, one of the weirdest things that I've never quite been able to get my arms around is that certain relief pitchers – and and this is not specific to Trevor Hoffman, although this is Trevor Hoffman this year for sure. Um, but Bruce Souter was like this. Raleigh Fingers was like this. In some ways, Dennis Eckersley was like this. Although that was a that was a strange career because he spent you know so much of it as a as a good starter uh, before he ever even started as a reliever. Um, we don't even ask the question whether or not they belong in the Hall of Fame. they It's like they transcend the question. Like a guy like Gossage was on the ballot forever, and eventually everybody said, well, you know, Gossage was probably better than Raleigh Fingers, and he was probably better than Bruce Souter, so he should be in the Hall of Fame. You know, it was like, it was like the thought process that followed made a lot of sense to me. You know, right. whether or not you would think he should be in the Hall or not, it was, it was a thought process. There was no thought process with putting Trevor Hoffman in the Hall of Fame, he got 70% of the vote his first year. So it was very clear that 
from the literal get-go that Trevor Hoffman was going to go to the Hall of Fame. And I'm not quibbling with that at all. If if that's how people feel, if they love to save, look, the relief pitcher is an important right. part of the game. I didn't vote for him, but I perfectly get why other people did. What I don't get is, why did Trevor Hoffman transcend the conversation while Billy Wagner sits at 10%, 11%, and probably isn't going anywhere, and nobody... Nobody even wants to talk about him. Like, how come he didn't get to like yeah. skip twelve grades? I don't get that. I, I agree with you, and, and I mean, for me, I, you know, I think I, I may have had Hoffman on my virtual ballot last year. I can't quite recall. I know I considered him, and uh, I would not have. I would not have had him in my top ten. But I get why. You know, I get why he's going in. And to sure. me, it goes. It sure. goes. It goes beyond the saves. It goes beyond the saves total. And you know, both Hoffman and Wagner, incidentally, are tied in Jaws at twenty four points. Uh, tied for 20th all time. Um, and that you've got Eckersley among the Hall of Fame relievers, you've got Eckersley, Wilhelm, Gossage, and Suter ahead of both of them. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a matter of innings thrown. Uh, Hoffman had slightly more innings than Bruce Suter uh, by about 57 total. Um, there's not a, not a huge, huge difference between them. There's less than one point of Jaws. Um, uh, but uh, there's a big distance. Uh, between both of those guys and Gossage, uh, you know, to me, what it, what it came down to when I I became much more comfortable with 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 Trevor Hoffman when I started looking at alternative ways to to view the relievers, and I've never been been entirely satisfied with uh, with the way that uh, uh, whatever wins above replacement stat I'm using used to be the BP warp, uh, right. and now it's and now it's BREF war. Uh, was uh, uh, does with capturing relievers? I don't think it gives enough credit for leverage. But as it turns out, Trevor Hoffman is number two all-time in win probability added uh, to Mariano Rivera. Um, that credits him for all those one-run games, even if he was pitching only a, you know the ninth inning with nobody on base. Sure, uh, you know, and 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 in a relatively low-scoring environment, such as uh, was produced by Petco Park uh, in an age of uh, very high scoring. I think that maybe overstates his case a little bit, but. You understate it one way and you overstate it another way. It comes out to be, I think, a, a reasonably worthy Hall of Famer. Billy Wagner is like fifth or sixth in that. Um, there are some additional leverage-adjusted stats you can throw in there that, that that kind of solidify his spot there among the the top half dozen relievers of all time. I think he's very worth it. Uh, I think you on you know on a ballot this crowded, it's very tough to find room for one reliever. So right. finding room for two is inconceivable. Um, for most people, uh, I do think that that you know Wagner's got one more year to withstand with Mariano Rivera going in, um, but after that, he's the best reliever we're going to see on the ballot for a while. I mean, I think you look at you look at Joe Nathan and, and Jonathan Papelbon and Francisco Rodriguez, who are you know not it's not a hundred percent clear that they're done, but of those guys, only K Rod uh, pitched in the majors last year, so the clock is the countdown has already begun on the other two guys. Um, you know they're the next tier, and and I I wouldn't take any of those guys over Wagner. Right. Um, you know they had they had stretches where they were good, but Wagner was just great for so long. Uh, and he walked away under his own power at just a like a point when he turned in one of his best seasons. The total the stats of total dominance really favor him. Um, you know I, I'm I'm hope, hopeful for Billy Wagner. He, one of he is his profile that I wrote for my SI series is one of my favorites. Um, because I went into it like, yeah, this guy's not a Hall of Famer, but let's look. And I was like, oh, geez. You start with the fact that he was actually born right-handed and and kept breaking his arm and learned to throw left-handed and threw left-handed with that heat. 
uh, and like the highest strikeout rate and uh, lowest opponent's batting average of anybody uh, at that level of innings or higher. And it's like, oh, Billy Wagner. Yeah. Holy, holy crap. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like we got to we got to talk about Billy Wagner. And there's so many, you know, we grew up around the same time. There's so many great and, you know, interesting relievers that, that we were treated to in the 70s and 80s. Guys like Kent Tocolvi and Dan Quisenberry. And, sure. you know, it was kind of the, the, the emergence of the modern relief ace, uh, you know, really flowered. The, the, the Rollades relief man. I mean, Sparky Lyle winning the Cy Young Award. Uh uh, Tug McGraw being one of the most quotable guys in baseball. There were so many of those guys. And I think Billy Wagner, boy, if he'd pitched in the 70s or 80s, he, he we, we, you know, and, and put up the kind of numbers he put up, uh, you know, he'd be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, look, I, I, I think you can have – you can have a very open conversation about what you should do with relief pitchers. One thing that I don't like is when people say, well, you know, I mean, if, if, if a relief pitcher is a specialist, then a DH is a specialist. How can you vote for a DH? Well, we haven't. We haven't voted for a DH. No, I mean, there, there's, there, there are no DHs in the Hall of Fame. I mean, Frank Thomas is the closest thing right. to a DH, and he basically spent almost half his career at first base. Uh, Tommy, the same thing. I mean, it's like these are – there are no DHs in the Hall of Fame, but we have five or, or six relievers in the Hall of Fame. So my feeling about the, 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 the situation with relief pitchers, from my personal viewpoint, is – in order to get in the Hall of Fame, you have to transcend the position. Yeah. Like the position is limiting in and of itself. So the best reliever, it's sort of like it's sort of like some years, uh, the Pulitzer Prize will like they'll say like for best feature or something, they'll just say no winner. They'll just say no, 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 right. nothing was good enough this year to do. Well, that's sort of how I feel. It's like just because you were the best relief pitcher does not mean you belong in the Hall of Fame. Did you transcend? The position, Mariano Rivera, unquestionably right. transcended the position. Trevor Hoffman, if you want to make the argument that he transcended the position, okay. How do you not make the argument that Billy Wagner did? Uh, I don't see, you know, your point about Wagner, lowest, uh, low, highest strikeout percentage, lowest uh, batting average against. He has the lowest whip, uh, yeah. walks and hits per innings pitched in baseball history. I mean, since dead ball. Yeah. I mean, this is... It's 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 insane. It's insane. He was truly one of the most unhittable pitchers any of us have ever seen uh, for an extended period of time, doing it year after year after year. So if you're going to vote Trevor Hoffman in, if he transcends, then Billy Wagner uh, transcends. And to me, transcends in a greater way, in my view. But this is where we start talking about next year's ballot. Next year, Mariano Rivera comes on, and you've given one – possibility which is Rivera's going to go in he's going to go in nearly unanimously it's going to be a big celebration it's going to be great after he leaves Billy Wagner will be the best reliever on the ballot probably for the next five years so will this a make Billy Wagner a viable Hall of Fame candidate where he will start climbing in total or because we've seen this happen too will Billy will basically Mariano Rivera reset the standards yeah. for what a relief pitcher needs to be. And suddenly Billy Wagner is nowhere near. This is what happened to Louis Tiant. Louis Tiant was absolutely at, you know, whether or not you think he belongs in the hall or not, he was at the hall of fame level. The voters uh, gave him a pretty high percentage his first year. Then a whole bunch of 300 game winners came along right. and suddenly Louis Tiant was out of the game. So, so does that sort of thing happen? 
uh, to Billy Wagner, or does Billy Wagner uh, actually benefit from the whole thing being cleared and him being on the stage alone? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I when I looked at my five year outlook, I couldn't really find room for him. Uh, but then I I was kind of by twenty twenty one, which is incidentally the first year I'll get my ballot. Um, you know, it's all up in the air. Uh, just because we've got such stratification here uh, between the the over fifty percent guys uh, and, and and the under fifty percent guys, you've only got two guys between Kurt Schilling, number nine at fifty one point two percent this year, and Fred McGriff, uh, number twelve at twenty three point two percent in his ninth year, and they're Vizquel, a first year candidate, and Larry Walker, an eighth year candidate, who's not going to make it to seventy five percent by the end. So. You're left with figuring out, like, who's going to rise? Jeff Kent, Gary Sheffield, Billy Wagner, Scott Rowland, Andrew Jones. I mean, there's yeah. – from from a standpoint of of uh, uh, precedent, uh, looking at, at, at how voters have handled guys who are, you know, down below 20% in their nth year on the ballot, there's just not much uh, to go by. I mean, none of these guys is Burt Blylevin. Um you know, level even or Duke Snyder level even, um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's tough to see how that's going to play out. And, you know, we're really just guessing, I think even more so than, you know, than, than you look back a couple of years. So um, it's, it's, it's interesting. It really is. It's going to be interesting. All right, let's talk about next year's ballot. And then I want to get back to uh, the conversation of the three guys. Uh, there are, in my view, there are four, between three and four, very interesting newcomers next year. And I'm looking at your jaw system for each of them, so that's going to be interesting to discuss as well. Mariano Rivera is interesting, but only because he's going to go in slam dunk, right? There's, 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 he's going to get more. If I give you over under of 95%, is he over or under? I, I think somewhere between, I, I would take the over, but only slightly. Okay. So you do think a bunch of people, yeah. bunch, like yeah. 20 people. We'll vote not vote for him because of the relief pitching yeah, thing or whatever. Yeah, I think so. Especially if we've still got still got uh, um, uh, no mandatory uh, transparency. Yeah. <laughs> well, th- there you go. I I would not want to be the one to vote against Mariano Rivera. Right. That doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. All right. So here are the three guys that I think are very interesting. It starts certainly with Roy Halladay. Um, I was surprised Roy Halladay does not quite. Uh, match up in Jaws to uh, to the position. He's a little bit, just a little bit below. He's his Jaws is fifty seven point six. By the way, Jaws being a combination of career value and peak value. That's that's the idea. Yeah, if if, if you'll allow me to explain on on how. Well, yeah, okay. Well, I guess you know it's it's just that it's the combination of career and peak. Roy Halladay's peak is a Hall of Fame peak, no doubt. Yes, um, he is uh, uh, within. I think he's about half a half a win over uh, the seven year uh, wins above replacement total of the average Hall of Fame starter. Uh, he does that with an innings total of two thousand seven hundred and forty nine and a third, which you know sounds like a big number, but really isn't. Um, the only starter uh, in recent memory who's gone in with fewer than three thousand innings uh, via the writers is Pedro Martinez, and we all know yeah. that Pedro Martinez was you know just about the best pitcher of of, of uh, uh, of ever, uh, yeah. of his ever. I mean, you on a, on a batter for batter basis, you can make a case that he is the best pitcher ever. All those things we were talking yeah. about Billy Wagner, um, you know, at, at his level of innings, Pedro Martinez at his his level of innings 
against the degree of difficulty he was facing incredible. is the man. Um, it's incredible. So Roy Halladay, uh, because of the uh, mess he made out of his early career, uh, in part, um, really not only not qualifying for an ERA title for the first time until he's 25 years old and had uh, uh, put up that uh, that 10.64 ERA a couple yeah. years earlier, yeah. um, and had just you know kind of been stuck in sort of a swingman role for a couple years and up and down uh, to AAA for a couple years, and maybe there was an injury in there. I'm forgetting uh, offhand. Um, you've got that, and then you've got him. Uh, disappearing from the majors at age 36 after throwing just yeah. two innings, um, it just ended. It just ended. It just ended. It just ended. It ended with it. Yeah. yeah, and 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 even you know the year before that, just 156 innings. So you've got really only about a 10 year, 10 or 11 years of solid major league uh, uh, service, and it's very tough to mount a strong Hall of Fame case in that. And so he comes up short in the career wins above replacement department, uh, relatively the average Hall of Famer by about uh, nine wins, roughly, you know, uh, one per year over the, over that, over that stretch. It's still a great career. And to me, it's not just that, but it's also the perspective of what's coming after, which is not much. Uh, yeah. You look at the pitchers who are, you know, the other, the other guy hitting the ballot next year, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're probably going to mention is Andy Pettit, with, right? With his, That's with, one of the four. Yeah, with his uh, 256 career wins and a whole lot, whole bunch of interesting postseason moments and things like that. Um, you know, Andy Pettit was not a run preventer in this in this in the same way that that Roy Halladay was. Andy Pettit didn't no. win any Cy Young awards. He never threw any no hitters. Um, you know, he does not have the things that that Halladay has. Um, you know, Mark Burley, another guy uh, who is, uh, I think, uh, hits the ballot a couple of years after that, um, just kind of, you know, more in the pettit class there. There just isn't any, there aren't anything close to a slam dunk guy, really, until we get to Clayton Kershaw. <laughs> we have to see how the how the late careers of uh, a number of guys like Zach Greinke, yeah, CC Sabathia, Justin yeah. Verlander uh, all play out. Um you know, some one of the one of those guys. I think you know, if they survive uh, uh, and pitch into their late thirties, early forties, even uh, I think is going to have the numbers. But not all of those guys. And I think there's we're sort of waiting for the electorate to reckon with uh, what I would what I think I'm, I'm calling the workload constraint era, uh, which is not just uh, the the permanent move to the five man rotation, uh, but also uh, the pitch count and innings caps. Uh, issues that, that these pitchers face. They can't, you know, there's the complete game is basically gone. Roy Halladay was kind of the last of his type, uh, the guy who was going to complete 10 starts a year or whatever. Um, you know, these, these other guys, I mean, they're great pitchers, but they've also, they've also experienced big divots in their careers due to, due to injuries that, that looked like they may be counted out uh, or something. And, uh, and even those guys are remarkable compared to what's co- what's come after them. You look at you know it's just there's like look at the free agent market right now. There's no number one starter. Oh, yeah. There's no there's no obvious number one starter right now. You dial back a couple of years. Think think of when uh, was it David Price and Johnny Cueto and uh, right was it Max Scherzer was that was that all the same year? Um, I'm maybe I'm mis- I'm, I'm Scherzer might be a year. Scherzer's, yeah, you're right. Scherzer, yeah, but you know like David Price has already fallen pretty far in, in the in the two yeah. years. Under his contract, Max Scherzer's held up remarkably well and has probably pitched himself into that into that uh, uh, position in part because Clayton Kershaw's gotten hurt, uh, and and Scherzer now has as many Cy Youngs three, um, right? But uh, Johnny Cueto, another another big money free agent, has fallen off the map. 
Felix Hernandez, who, you know, at one point looked like he was going to be a 300 game winner has fallen off the right. map. Um, there's just, there's just not a lot of starting pitching options. If you look at the next 10 years and, Boy, Roy Halladay looks absolutely fantastic when you when you uh, uh, place him in that context and the context of Paul Pitchers. Um, but it also just leads me to go look back at, at Mike Messina and Kurt Schilling and like, what do these guys have to do? Yeah, I mean, I know, finally, I you know, know, finally Messina's up above sixty percent, and he looks like he's trending towards election in a couple of years. Uh, and Schilling has regained some ground, and we don't need to dwell on why Kurt Schilling has has lost ground, right? Um, right. But you know, he obviously has. Um, so I, I, I think in that regard, Roy Halladay particularly stands out to me as, as a guy who I think is a must. And I think, you know, the unfortunate, the, the tragedy of, of, of his untimely death has probably accelerated his, his path to election. Um, I think he's a first ballot guy now. I don't, you know, I think when I look back at what I wrote a year ago, I had him taking three or four years to get in. Yeah, I think that's right. I think all of that's right. By the way, I one of the things I love about Jaws is that it does look at uh, a career uh, total and and looks at a at a peak uh, seven year peak. I wish, really wish, that uh, as voters look at starting pitchers these days, they start looking a lot more at peak and a lot less a career total because we're just not. Your point is one hundred percent right. Look, Clayton Kershaw. To me, Clayton Kershaw does not have to pitch another inning to be a Hall of Famer. You know, I mean, he's he clearly was a the dominant pitcher uh, of our of our time, uh, and and to me, he's in the Hall of Fame. He's 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 a Hall of Famer right now. And yet, if he came out right now, you would be looking at how many wins he had, and this and that and the other. And I just think that's such an outdated way of looking at it. And I think Roy Halladay is an absolute. Hall of Famer. I will vote for him. He's the first ballot guy for me. But I don't think Roy Halladay was a better pitcher than Johan Santana. Oh boy, I really yeah, don't. Yeah, I, I think you could put. Yeah, you, we could have that. Uh, uh, what we just talked about there applies to Johan Santana. I mean, I think Santana, um, had, you know, has about seven hundred fewer innings than Halladay, and did, right, did not have the chance even to get Roy Halladay's peak. I mean, like if you if you define peak as a five year thing. Yeah. he's right there. Um, unfortunately, for for Santana and my system, I use seven years. Um, yeah. I originally used five consecutive. Which boy, Holiday would look. I mean, uh, Santana would look great if he used uh, he sure oh, f- oh four to oh eight. <laughs> my God, um, uh, just just to, just excuse the clicking here for a second. I just want to total that up. Uh, that's a, a twenty thirty five point four WAR in a five year span. Seven point one. Uh, average over those five years. That, amazing. That's wow. And, and then you think Halliday did average more than seven over seven years. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, for five years, uh, Johan Santana is right there with him. And um, an, another guy who I loved working on his profile. And I was also like, man, there's no way this guy's going to survive uh, even to year two on this ballot. Um, you know, so this is my best chance to make his case and 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 have him cast into the void uh, alongside uh, Kenny Lofton and the and the other one and done guys. Uh, well, it just I just think there are a bunch of pitchers. I mean, in in recent years, like David Cohn, like Brett Saberhagen, like Johan Santana, like Kevin Brown. Although Kevin Brown's his own story, who if you look at them and say, okay, at their best. When you look at the best of Brett Saberhanger or the mm-hmm. best of, of of David Cohn, 
are they are they not as good as John Smoltz? Are they not as good as 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 Tom Glavin? Are they not as good as as all these guys that we've been putting in the Hall of Fame in recent years? And then that's why you do need okay, you got to do it for an extended period of time. And I get that. I really do. And I'm not trying to make the case. Roy Halladay has a better Hall of Fame case than Johan Santana. But I just think it's funny we're kind of splitting hairs a little bit because Roy Halladay, I think, has a very good chance of going in first ballot. And Johan Santana didn't get 3% of the vote. Yeah. I mean, and that's it's just strange. It's just it's just strange how we – how we judge it. And there are plenty of people in the hall of fame, as you and I both know, uh, who aren't as good as either of them. Right. You know, I mean, they're, they're just, they're just, they just managed to last a long time. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic that we should probably hit another time. Well, yeah, actually, I, I, before, before we do, I just want to note one thing. I mean, just the fates of the, of the two time Cy Young winners. I mean, I'm just, just to read a list here, you've yeah. got Bob Gibson, obvious hall of famer, Tom Glavin, 300 right. game winner, hall of famer, Gaylord Perry, 300 game winner, Hall of Famer. And then you've got yeah. Halliday, Santana, Saber Hagen, Denny McLean, Tim Lincecum, and, and Corey <laughs> Kluber. I mean, that is just like you could write a hell of a book about the fates of those, uh, the careers and the fates of those nine guys and what happened True. to them. And I think it would be, it, it would make for, it would make for a, an interesting read and, and, and uh, an engrossing one. Um, just the range of possibilities that could happen to people. I mean, Tim Lincecum, you know, his his career is is in oblivion. He's never even going to get two point four percent on the Hall of Fame ballot. Um, I'm not even sure he's got his ten years. To be perfectly honest, as I sit here, uh, oh yes, he does. He does have exactly ten years now. So ten years. So yeah. he's so he's he's he could he well, could appear on a ballot, and he will. All right, here's here's one for you. Somebody asked me this question point blank because I've said my my feeling about how much. Uh, more valuable in my mind uh, starters are and that uh, no offense to Trevor Hoffman. I don't think he was as good a pitcher as Johan Santana. I just don't think he was. Uh, and somebody asked me that question. They said, would you take the career of Tim Lincecum or the career of Trevor Hoffman? And, you know, that's a fascinating question. Well, you know, if, yeah. depends on what you mean. What would I take? Would I take as a player? If I was, if I got to be one of those guys, Certainly, I'd want to be Trevor Hoffman. I mean, right? I'd well, want the, I, the even. I mean, Trevor Hoffman has like you know postseason negatives. I think attached to him. And yeah, that's one, that's one of the big knocks. And Tim Lincecum, big part of uh, of a couple titles there. Um, true. And that, that's and that true. comes with the territory. And I think I, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's not fair. Maybe this isn't fair to Hoffman. Was was Hoffman as beloved? By the Padres fans at his peak, as Lincecum was by Giants fans at his peak. Maybe, 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 maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so. Yeah. And, they, and and certainly for longer because of of, of his staying power. Um, but uh, um, if I'm a GM, if I'm a GM, I hate to tell you know. I mean, because again, I don't want it to sound like I'm knocking Trevor Hoffman because sure. I'm not. But if I'm a GM, I'm taking Tim Lincecum. I mean, look, I can I can mostly replace Trevor right. Hoffman. Maybe I can't get as good as Trevor Hoffman. He was terrific. But I can, you know, you look at the Braves during all the years they won the championships. They had a different closer every year. Right. If I, if I, I could figure out a way to replace my closer much, much easier than I could to get, even for four years, you know, the the best pitcher on the planet. Right. right? I mean, right. that's that 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 feels to me like I could, I would rather have the 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 start. Yeah. You know, so, no, nothing if, nothing tells me about the relative difficulty of closing. As the fact that Bud Norris saved 19 games last year. 
That's a fact. That's a fact. All right. Uh, I want to ask you about Todd Helton, and then I want to go to our three guys, because that's where we're going to close this thing out. Um, Todd Helton was one heck of a hitter, just a fantastic hitter. Uh, He also played in Colorado, and we've seen what happened to Larry Walker, who was – I, it drives me insane that Larry Walker can't get uh, any any real momentum going. What's going to happen? First, I'll ask you what's going to happen, then what should happen to Todd Helton? Well, I think Helton is in for an uphill battle. I mean, you know, yeah. you look at what's happened with Walker. He didn't break even 25% of the vote until this year when he got 34%. Um, and he isn't going to get to, you know, 75% by the time his 10 years are up. Um, he'll be lucky to get to 50%, although I do think that there may be – you know, enough momentum. I, Helton looks like a guy who's probably going to be in Fred McGriff territory in the, in the low twenties. Um, Cause people it's, it's easy to discount his numbers uh, because he spent his entire career in Colorado. We don't have much basis, uh, you know, to say, Oh, well look at what Walker did in St. Louis and look at what Walker did in Montreal. And, you right. know, we've got Todd Walker. I mean, uh, Larry Walker's all around skills uh, as a defender and a base runner. Todd Helton is kind of one dimensional, you, you know, even yeah. well, actually that's not fair. Todd Helton was a good defender. He did his gold gloves. He's got a few of them. He's plus 74 runs here. I, 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 I yeah, he's a, he was a good defender, but he was a first right, he's a better so, that I remember him being uh, less so in the mind's eye than, than more just looking at these, looking over these numbers and kind of resolidifying their place in my mind. Problem with Todd Helton is, you know, there's two problems. One to me, I don't think his thirties were that impressive. Um, he had some down years in his thirties, um, only had 20 home runs once in his in his 30s uh, after Crazy. after age 30, and that's in that most favorable hitting environment. Um, and you know he's being judged against first baseman, and first baseman you got to bring it, you got to bring the, the the heavy lumber. And he didn't even have 400 home runs, um, you know, 369 career homers. So I I don't see Todd Helton getting a ton of traction here. Um, it's you know I'll tell you one thing though. 592 doubles. That's impressive. Oh, yeah, the, look, Todd Helton's numbers are impressive. 133 career OPS plus, um, you know, the 414 career on base percentage. Um, the guy could hit. And, but, you know, it, and maybe it's unfair. Look, you know, Larry Walker won an MVP award. Todd Helton never finished higher than fifth right. uh, in the voting, was not regarded as, as even, you know, that, that type of player. Um, and that was although, although I have to say, I have to say, I mean, look, I uh I think Todd Helton is a is a problematic case for a lot of reasons, uh, including the fact that he really did fall off after age 35 and and didn't put up the big uh career totals uh that you want. That 2000 season that he finished oh fifth in the MVP. You're movie. right. Oh my right. god. You're, How yeah, slash that that's slash the, that triple, triple crown, 372, 463, <laughs> 690. I mean, let's, you know, that's a that's a Larry, that's a Larry Walker peak season there. Um, yeah, Stan Musial. The guy 59 doubles. 59 doubles, 147 RBIs. That's just 405 total bases. Yes, that is a Stan Musial season there. Um, <laughs> yeah, though those are those are just silly video game numbers. Um, they are, but they even are. like you know, I, I can see him being dinked for the fact that he didn't drive in a hundred runs once he once he passed age thirty. Once you know, once he reached his thirtieth birthday, he didn't drive in a hundred runs. And like, boy, that's a you know, for if you're supposed to be an offensive cornerstone, you're looking at old school stats. He's in trouble there. Uh, by the way, by the way, how does somebody hit three forty seven with thirty two home runs and forty nine doubles and not? 
drive in a hundred runs. You, like, he, he how walked, bad was that team around? Yeah, well, it's it's that, and it's also that he walked one hundred and twenty-seven times. So we did walk one hundred and twenty-seven. Sort of, you've got sort of the Joey Votto problem there. Um, yeah. in that, in that the walks start to be held against you and the high on base percentage starts to be held against you because you know, you're driving in runs in runs are made in baseball games. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, we have heard that. Yeah, we have heard yeah, that. I mean, it's you've got, you've got, I, I just pulled up the 2004 Rockies page since we're talking about it. You've got a lousy age 24 season from Matt Holiday. You've got yep. an okay age 36 season from Vinny Castilla. Uh, you've got Helton's great year there, and you've got a pretty solid season from Jeremy Burnitz in right field. And those are the only the only full timers who with who who contributed uh, an OPS plus that was a that was above average, above average. Yeah, and, and just like they're just you've got like you know late stage Charles Johnson, uh, terrible Aaron Miles and Royce Clayton in the middle infield off from an offensive standpoint. Really bad partial season from Preston Wilson there in center field, and and just you know, despite all the advantages that that this Rockies had uh, offensively, they finished fourth in scoring. I mean, you know, <laughs> it takes some it takes some doing, and and uh, but. By the way, that year, Vinny Castilla drove in 131. Yes. And Jeremy Burnitz drove in 110. How many of those were Todd Elton? Right, right. You know, I mean, it's a thing. Todd Elton was, on the, uh, was out there all the time. Yeah. So anyway, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. All right. Uh, I want to wrap this up. I want to uh, I want to let you have uh, the rest of the day to yourself. Um, but I, we have to talk about those three guys because I think they connect very, very strongly. There are three players that will be on next year's ballot hopefully on ballots to come, we'll see how that plays out, who their case is this in a general way. They were uniquely gifted defensive players in their time and in baseball history. They were uniquely gifted defensive players. They were good enough offensively that once you add their defense to the mix, they are Hall of Famers. That is the argument for all three of these guys. Okay. So the the first guy on that list, the guy that got the highest percentage this year by far of the three is Omar Vizquel. So Omar Vizquel, the entire case for Omar Vizquel is uh, he was he was a unique uh, defensive shortstop, the best of his time, one of the best of all time in the in the in the picture, if not in the same uh, room, but in the, in the picture with Ozzie Smith and offensively lots and lots and lots of hits, right? He had 2,800 plus hits. That's his case. The second guy is Andrew Jones, incredible defensive center fielder. As you mentioned, some stats show him the greatest of all time. Uh, Certainly the best of his time. Nobody ever disputed that or doubted at the time, won a bunch of gold gloves. And then his defensive numbers are off the charts plus 400 home runs. He wasn't a great offensive player, but he did hit 400 home runs, uh, did almost win an MVP. And and so you say, good enough offensively, uh, to, when you add in the defense, he's in the hall. And the third guy, Scott Rowland. And Scott Rowland is certainly the best offensive player of that group, um, but it's the same general case. Greatest defensive third baseman, maybe uh, you know with Adrian Beltre, but one of the all-time great defensive third basemen. And then very, very good hitter, better hitter than the other two guys, uh, probably would not be a Hall of Famer if he was a mediocre left fielder. He didn't hit that well, but considering his great defense, a third Hall of Famer. So 
why are these three guys breaking out the way that they are where Roland and Jones both were very, very low on the ballot. Uh, Jones almost, almost fell off the ballot and Omar Vizquel is clearly on his way to, uh, you know, 37%. That's, that's very, very good for a first year. What happened? Yeah. You know, I think, I think that, um, uh, first of all, I, if I'm not mistaken, it was the, the unpublished ballots, according to, to Ryan Thibodeau, it, the percentages might have shifted now. But both Barry Bonds and Omar Vizquel got the same 44% on the unpublished ballots. One of them finished with 56%. One of them finished with 37% uh, in, the, in the final <laughs> numbers. I think that's, that is amazing. Um, Omar Vizquel is a lot of flashy marketing uh, and and maybe a little bit of revisionism here. Um he was legitimately a very watchable player defensively. Uh, he came along at a time when uh, the nightly highlight shows were in their heyday. And so whether it's web gems or uh, MLB TV, MLB.com highlights, we have, we have no shortage of, of great footage of Omar Vizquel. Um, he was a beloved elder statesman who stuck around until he was about 56 years old um, and was still a pretty reasonable, reasonably good defensive player. So he accumulated some high uh, totals in hits to 2,877 and uh, the yeah. most games played for a shortstop. I think it's very easy to look at the, uh, the, the slash line and the, and the hits total and think, Oh yeah, he's, he's kind of like Ozzy Smith. He's pretty much Ozzy yeah. Smith um, without really taking into account uh, the breadth of Ozzy Smith's skills uh, as a base runner, which were considerable and which like do a lot to uh, distance himself from from Omar Vizquel, and it's the fact that Omar played in a very high scoring era and Ozzy in a very low scoring one, and so hitting two seventy or two or two you know whatever uh, had very di- you know with the peripheral stats they had had very different meanings and very different values. Um, you know, the defensive numbers don't make as strong a case for Omar as you'd think. There's about, you know, he's, I, I, I think the baseball reference ones have Omar in about the top dozen shortstops of all time, which is right. very respectable. Um, and sure, you can argue that maybe they're shortchanging him a little bit, um, but there's still about a hundred run gap between him and Ozzie Smith uh, on the defensive side. And then it turns out there's about another, uh, more than that on the offensive side, and, and especially when you consider the base running. Um, I just don't think he's as, I don't think he's the exemplar of, of the good field, no hit guy to be at the hall of fame, you know, by jaws, he's about the equivalent of the worst, uh, hall of fame shortstop in that regard, rabbit Moranville. Um, I, you know, it's tough for me to get, uh, to, to, to feel, to feel a strong urge to elect him. You know, you go back, you look at the way he was thought of in terms of all-star appearances and MVP appearance, MVP voting, you know, a 16th place MVP finish, three all-star appearances, obviously, you know, and this, this guy had a ton of exposure as, you know, as being part of those great Indians teams that were perennial postseason contenders. And, and like I said, he had that sort of elder statesman tour that, uh, uh, you know, with, with the giants, especially, um, but it's just, it feels like it's less than the sum of its parts to me because that batting is so bad. Well, let me, let me say this. Cause look, I love Omar Vizquel. I mean, I, Clevelander, sure. uh, loved watching him play, love him. This, I don't get it. And of course, when I start talking like this, I come off as an Omar Vizquel hater, and I'm not. I love the guy. I think he's he's uh, fantastic. Um, 
I don't get it yeah. at all. And your point that you just made is the one that, to me, people who compare Omar Vizquel to Ozzy Smith uh, are missing many, many things like you talk about. They're missing <clears throat> base running. You're missing that Ozzy was a much, much better fielder. All of these other things. That's all fine and good. Here's the thing that I don't get about the argument. When we watched Ozzie Smith play, and I mean when we as a collective watched him play, we got it. The guy was the all-star uh, shortstop every single year. Every single year, he was the he was the the top vote getter at shortstop. He started what 10, right. 10 or, or 10 out of 11 years. He was the starting shortstop in the National League. He almost won the MVP in 87 and probably should have won the MVP considering the voting and how they, how it went uh, in 87. Um, he was, he was, we was the biggest, one of the biggest stars in the game while he played. We didn't have to wait for him to retire right. before anybody said, Oh, you, you know what? He was really underappreciated. He was a gigantic, gigantic star. Everybody knew Ozzy Smith. Everybody wanted to be Ozzy Smith. None of that's true about Omar Vizquel. Yes. None of it. He never started an all-star game. I mean, he never started one all-star game. Yeah. And and look, he was terrific. But you tell me how Ozzy's how how Omar Vizquel is better than Dave Concepcion. Right. Or better than, you know, Bert Campanaris, or better than about five other shortstops you can name who were terrific fielders. They were they were all excellent fielding shortstops. They hit at least as well, or if not better than what you would expect from the position. Um, and, and, and I just don't get it. I don't know where this Omar Vizquel stuff came from. And uh, it's fine. Look, if Omar Vizquel, people want to vote for Omar Vizquel, you know, like I said, I love the guy. But man, I don't get this. I just, I just don't understand it at all. Even Jack Morris had like the biggest, most wins in the eighties right. and, and all those opening day starts and, and, you know, the great postseason performances. And you're like, okay, well, maybe I agree. Maybe I disagree. Now he's in the hall of fame. Uh, so that conversation finally can get to bed, <laughs> but I got it. I got why people saw this. I don't even get this. I don't even understand it. Yeah. It's, it, it's incredibly, it's an incredibly polarizing debate. And unfortunately, you know, as, as was the case with Jack Morris, it feels like when we dig in our heels to argue against whether he's right. belonged, right. whether he's one of the top one percent of all time or merely one of the top five percent of all time, it's we're expending a lot of energy to argue that, and you have to because some people are just so insistent on ignoring the actual evidence in favor of their own subjective uh, points of view, and it's just it. It's probably the most the the like the least appealing part of this whole thing is like. I agree. You know, it's I like agree. You have, that you have to, you know, you, you maybe I don't want to say talk in hyperbole because I, I I think I've maybe tried to tame myself from that as I've got, as my as my point of view has has uh, uh, become one that uh, a larger share of the electorate listens to. Um, you know, I try to play it straight here um, so that so that the uh, the the clarity is not lost. But yeah, I I don't get it with Omar Vizquel. I do think that. You know, there's like David Concepcion, I think, is a great comparison. I wanted to believe David Concepcion was a, was a Hall of Famer shortstop because I have such fond memories of watching him. And you, you think, you know, sure. the big red machine and what they meant to baseball and and, and uh, uh, Concepcion with that bounce throw and and, and, and all that. Um, and the fact is, David Concepcion doesn't measure, measure it very well and that he and 
Uh, Omar Vizquel are about three notches uh, apart in in Jaws. Omar actually does have the advantage there. Um, yeah, might played long. Yeah, I played. Yeah, I, well, and and David Concepcion is a guy who fell just you know half a season short of ten thousand plate appearances. That's not a short right. career at all. Um, no, no, not at all. But he was a nine, but he was a nine time All Star, and he had to, you know, and he had to. Uh, he was still doing it, uh, you know, when Ozzy came along. Um, yeah, that's it, again. It's, it, it, it feels unfortunate to me that, that Vizquel is going to be a symbol. Um, one thing that one, right. and, you know, one thing that bothers me, though, I, I have to say, for all of this, Omar Vizquel was a great guy. Thing, the Jose Mesa thing really, really galls me. Um, <laughs> it was, it was pretty nasty. It, yeah, it was like, pretty yeah, nasty. It, it really nasty. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't think you can. You know, I, I think you, you, as fans, we understand the notion of heroes and goats. Once you're in, you know, once you're inside of the game and you actually talk to these people and you know that like the honest effort was there, uh, I don't think you can call a guy out like that, call a teammate out like that. I, 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 I'm trying to. It was, it was a pretty nasty. Yeah, thing I mean, to I'm do. thinking it really was. Kurt Schilling making an ass out of himself and hiding under a towel when Mitch Williams threw fine. You know, I mean, Mitch Williams was walking the ballpark every time. Okay, yeah. um, you look at Mitch Williams's numbers, and there's no way that guy would get a chance today. Uh, walking seven guys per nine and, and holding on to that closer job. But aside from that, you just didn't see that kind of, of – you don't see that kind of undercutting anymore. And just the way that – Well, and especially the way he did yeah, it. Exactly. It, wasn't like, it wasn't like an instant reaction. He wrote in his yes. book, you know, that I saw – what was it? I looked in his eyes and, and I there was nobody saw home. that yeah. nobody was home. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you don't do that. Yeah, that's, guy, that's, just a, know, that's, that's a professional hit job. <laughs> Yeah, and then of course, and then Jose Mesa hit him. Yeah, a bunch of times yeah, with him. yeah. I, the, I chronicled. Uh, I, it was. Let me tell you something about one more thing about Omar Vizquel. I, I wrote the Omar Vizquel profile that ran at SI.com a year plus ahead of time. It was it was written for the Cooperstown casebook, and then it felt it was so negative in the context of of everything else that I'd written, which was generally you know folk, because the space is limited. Limited. I focused on guys who do well by my system, which is why I sure. kept the Vlad Guerrero profile out. It's also why I kept the Omar Vizquel profile. It's not that fun to beat on a guy for not measuring up. Um, that one just felt too negative. Um, but, I, but, 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 the, but, you know, I bought a copy of the Omar, uh, of Omar's autobiography, um, just so that I could transcribe, uh, all that stuff and, and, and apply some perspective and use that Jose Mesa situation as a jumping off point. And sorry, I was just turning around to make sure I had the book here. Um, no, but yeah, it's, it, it is just, uh, it's so far out of con. I mean, you just out of the, you know, beyond the pale of what, what we expect from major leaguers these days. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, it, it isn't, it doesn't, it doesn't speak well. It really doesn't. And again, your point is hundred percent right. Here's, here's how I've come around to this because look, I've written plenty of things that would be perceived as over the top, including with Jack Morris and others, uh, because I do feel strongly, I don't feel strongly against any player, but I feel strongly against, um, false arguments, yes. right? Yes. That bothers me. I, really, it's, it's emotional, and it shouldn't be. I don't – look, if Omar Vizquel gets voted into the Hall of Fame, I'll celebrate Omar Vizquel. Omar Vizquel is a wonderful player. I have no problem with that. I'm not going to vote for him because I don't think he measures up to where the standard of the Hall of Fame is, and I think there are a lot of people ahead in line of him. If we ever get down to the point where all the guys I think are ahead of line – uh, of him are are in the Hall of Fame, then <laughs> then it's all systems go. But we're a long way from that. So uh, so that's how I feel. I guess for me the question with him, and so let's let's bring in Roland and Andrew Jones. 
why isn't the same argument? And again, like sort of the skipping in line thing that I feel like Trevor Hoffman did over Billy Wagner. Why, why don't those, why don't, how can you look at Omar Vizcal and say, Hey, amazing defense hit enough, but you don't say the same thing about Andrew Jones or Scott Rowland. I don't understand. It's, that. I think it's, you know, this is, I think this goes back to a Bill James observation that, that people have a harder time of wrapping their heads around somebody who does many things well, rather than one thing. Well, and yeah. it, it, it goes back to the Larry, what we we're saying about Larry Walker, who's, you know, one of the ultimate five tool players. Um, yes. Even if it's not commonly thought of as, as, as that, maybe because he's white, um, you know, that, that Larry Walker was an elite base runner, was an elite defender, um, you know, at least before his injury, uh, his injuries. And, and, you know, people think just, oh, course, course inflated hitting stats when, when it wasn't that. Uh, no. Roland, you know, is a top 10 or top 15 offensive short uh, third baseman. Uh, and yes. at worst, a top five uh, defensive for third baseman and possibly, uh, you know, top three, if we, if you look at the, you know, the fielding metrics and the gold glove count, uh, both right. have him third. I mean, it's, that's alarming and rare that, that they match up so well, even given the fact that, the, yes, the gold gloves didn't come along until the late fifties. Um, you know, it matches up very well. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't get it. I think the only thing, the only thing I can think of is that, you know, Scott Rowland never had the, you know, a, a huge, monster offensive season that people appreciated. You know, a lot of Scott Rowland's value offensively isn't good on good on base percentages, um, which a lot of people had a hard time seeing, you know, when they saw the the you know, I guess modest batting averages that are that are certainly fine, but we don't really care about batting average anymore. Right. Um, right. You know, two eight two eighty, two seventy, two sixty, so what? You know, it doesn't like as long as he's getting those those three sixty uh, plus on base percentages, it doesn't really matter that much how you get there. So, you know, when you're hitting a lot of home runs and pounding a lot of doubles too. What you know, I think people also just they forget he, that what a huge part of those Cardinals teams he was the '04 yes. and '06 uh, pennant winners and '06 champions. Um, he very easily could have been the MVP of the World Series in 2006, except people who were voting fell in love with the David Eckstein narrative. Right. Um, you know, I mean, Scott Rowland went eight for 19 with three doubles and a home run in that world series with a 1213 OPS. I mean, what does yeah. a guy have to do? I mean, that's, you know, that's, you know, he, he, he just, he was great in that series and he had some other big playoff series The the 2004 uh, NLCS. Uh, he was very big for against Houston. Um, you know that's that's another one. He had he had some he had some less than great series too. He was over fifteen in the uh, uh, two thousand four World Series, so that didn't end well. Um, but right. nothing was going to stop those Red Sox at that point. I don't think um, they were they were the team of destiny. Um, yeah, and, and you know he's uh, Roland was was an elite defender on a team that also had Jim Edmonds, who was you know I think one of the most fun ball players to watch of his time, and yeah, and Yadi Molina is behind the plate, and Albert Pujols at a time when Albert Pujols was still you know a a, a defensive plus as 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 well as uh, uh, as well as being uh, you know a dominant hitter. Dominant yeah, hitter. no, that's yeah, that's right. No, that's right. I look, I think. You know, we can we we've talked uh, I think enough about Jones Andrew Jones. To me, the focus to me on on Roland. <clears throat> I wonder if there's so much of a difference in the way people view a third baseman versus the way people view a shortstop, which is silly if you think about it. They're both 
you know, they're both on that side of the field. Right. They, they play right next to each other. But the fact that that Omar Vizquel, because if you look at at defensive, um, you know, just just what they did defensively, regardless of position, Scott Rowland was a better defender than Omar Vizquel. You know, I mean, he was just he he was a better defender. He put, right. I mean, I, he put up more more fielding runs uh, defensively than Omar Vizquel did. But because Omar Vizquel played short, uh, I don't know that people view it that way. It's almost as if they can't imagine a third baseman being a better defender than a great shortstop. It's 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 weird. Yeah, it is. And you know, one of the things I, I looked at is you know when you just when you want to separate yourself from the fielding metrics uh, a little bit, or at least the advanced fielding metrics, because I think you know there's still um, uh, maybe a little bit of distrust in them. Getting back to, to Ozzie Smith, Ozzie Smith on a per nine basis using just chances per game, put outs and assists per yes. game was was yes. 44 one hundredths uh, of, of uh, a play per game or per nine innings above the average shortstop of his time, which is a lot, which is a lot. Point four per nine. That's basically, you know, a play every other inning or four plays, four yep. plays per nine innings. Uh, are, are, are you know four, ten, four, four, yeah, four it's seventy it's seventy yeah. points a year it's a, yes, it's, a, it's a it's a lot. Um, Omar Vizquel is point oh one above the average shortstop of his time. Um, these are easy things to look up on Baseball Reference. Scott Rowland is let's see range factor per nine two point eight six, uh, and the league was two point six seven. So point two, uh, yeah. plays per nine innings. I mean, it's like. That, that's monstrous. I mean, that's a, just a, you know getting to all kinds of balls that other guys didn't get to, um, you know, and it shows up. And I, I bet you you could probably put Scott Rowland at shortstop for half a season, and he would have been fine there. Um, you know, maybe the wear and tear of the position could have broken him down more quickly than, than you know he didn't need any help breaking down, um, especially no, especially no. late in his career. So it might not have held up for very long, but. But there's no question in my mind you could put Scott Rowland at shortstop and like put the, put Scott Rowland on those Indians teams. Let's see let's see how many World Series they win then. You know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean that. Look, I trade him. I trade Omar Vizquel for Scott Rowland every day of the yeah. week. So, uh, but you know, but but there is something to be said about the fielding mm-hmm. metrics. Um, you might not agree with them. You might you might feel like you know, especially Bill James's big complaint is that Willie Mays is, is measured in a different way than 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 the modern center fielder is. I get all of that. I mean, I'm not, there is something behind the fielding metrics, whether you sure. agree with them or not, there's a reason why those metrics are what they are. You might not agree with the, with the methodology. You might not agree with, with how they do it. You might want to just trust your eyes. I'm looking, watch the game any way you want to watch the game, but there's a reason that Scott Rowland, uh, Contributed fifty more fielding runs than Omar Vizquel. There is a reason. Whether you agree with the reason or not is not important. Just understand right. that that's real. That is real. Right. And and uh, you know, I, I like I say, I hope uh, I hope Scott. I I I have no. I don't begrudge Omar Vizquel if if his if if he if he can convince seventy five percent of the people to vote for him. I have no issues with that. But I do have issues with Scott Rowland not getting more support and and I hope he gets yeah. it. I really I think do. one thing I was heartened by is that, you know, there were a number of people either in their columns or their tweets or conversations that I had who, you know, who maybe voted before giving Scott Rowland, I think, a, a fully fair shake and, and say, I want to look harder at this guy next year. You know, I, I, yeah. I may have, maybe I met, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I missed the boat there. Let me, let me go back and take a look next year when, you know, when, 
when we've got uh, a little bit more space on the ballot. And uh, so I'm, I, I think he goes upwards from here. Obviously, you know, the, the historical precedence for people starting their Hall of Fame uh, ballot tenures with 10% uh, and getting to the Hall of Fame are, are pretty slim. Uh, it's a lot of guys who got in on the Veterans Committee ballots, uh, you know, or, or whatever. But um, I, I do think he goes up. I do think Andrew Jones goes up. One thing I will say, getting back to the Bill James thing and the, and the you know, total, total zone, which is what we have for pre-defensive run save stuff that starts in 2003, uh, actually holds um, – you know, and what we have basically for for most of baseball history, which is just based on you know ball, you know, static balls in play and and uh, right. uh, inferred location data, still has Andrew Jones ahead of Willie Mays. And you know, we're using the same the same sources of data. Maybe it's a little bit less granular in the in Willie Mays's time, but you know, it's still like he he Andrew Jones still does better by that method of measurement uh, than uh, you know than Mays. So it's not like a completely ridiculous thing. He just, you know, if you're apportioning credit to, you know, to the Braves defense for, uh, you know, for, for preventing runs uh, because the pitchers weren't all, weren't doing it all themselves, the credit has to go there. And those, the gap between what the Braves should have been allowing and what they did allow over that time span is such that the, you know, the, the, the lion's share of the credit has to go to him. Well, and and I don't think anybody, Bill Bill James included, believes that he was uh, anything other than a great, great defensive center fielder. But I, I don't want to, I don't want to try to break down Bill's argument here. I think it was much more along the lines of, um, you know, trying to trying to build uh, gigantic uh, cases like the fact that he is uh, the greatest defensive center fielder right, of all right. time. On on statistics that are that are you know not not necessarily uh, as strong as you would like them to be, but we can discuss that another time. Uh, Jay, this it's always fun to geek out uh, yeah. about the the Hall of Fame with you. Hopefully, we'll do that again soon. Thanks for joining. Hey, a pleasure, Joe. It's always fun to talk all with you and talk baseball in general. All right, Mike. So that was uh, me and Jay Jaffe talking about the uh, Hall of Fame. You'll you'll have to listen to that. It's it was uh, it was cool. Jay's Jay smart. Jay's a smart dude. Yeah, smart person. Yeah, very smart person. Very cool. All right. So we're going to close this out, and we are we are looking for ways to close these things out. Uh, we've decided to close it out with book club. That's right. Uh, book club. That's what we're doing this week is book club, uh, where we'll each recommend a book. Uh, we'll see how long this lasts. I, I see this a one week, a one week deal, but we only have a couple of minutes. So well, we're trying to close all of our podcasts with a different thing. We're in search of a thing to replace what <laughs> used are. to be one last meaningless thing to end this meaningless thing. And so we've tried, what have we tried so far? Let's quickly, we've tried gripes, gripes. Right? A lot of people um, liked gripes, by the way, I thought it was a little negative, really? a little negative. I thought it's a lot a of people downbeat, right? Yeah, we don't want to do that. And then what else have uh, we tried? I forget. Oh everything my gosh, that we've, we've done. done baseball players that uh, just came to mind. Like out, like all right, uh, you know, baseball. We did uh, inventions. We love. I know we've done that sure. one. Um, we've done like three or four others. I can't remember them all. Uh, <laughs> one one thing we could do. I mean, we actually talked last week about just uh, insulting Keith Law. We thought like we would just end oh. this thing by doing that. Uh, which is super fun. Let's, but do we, that. Let's do that next week. We're going <laughs> to next week will be insult Keith Law. Insult Keith Law. Uh, but book club. So, what is your book? Uh, so, there's a book coming out called "All the Pieces Matter: oh, uh, The gosh, Inside Story fine. of the Wire." Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. No, no. But that's <laughs> that's fine. 
Yeah. So it was written by Jonathan Abrams. Um, I was asked to blurb this book, which was a very high honor. It's rarely happened to me uh, in my life. And I did blurb it. Um, It's a it's a sort of oral history of the making of The Wire. It's a wonderful book. It, it, it you obviously it is better if you've seen The Wire. <laughs> like you'll <laughs> you'll enjoy it more if you've seen the show. But I have to say that what was um what was so fun about reading it is it's a it's fun to just learn. You it's a good book to read if you just want to learn about like how TV is made. Like if you're interested in the process of making TV from like conception and idea all the way through execution and like series finale you get a really good sort of view of the whole, it's like a bird's eye view of the entire um, show being put together through the voices of the people who actually made it and started it and all that sort of stuff. So uh, highly recommend it. I don't think it's out yet. It's coming out very soon. Um, but that's my official podcast book club recommendation. All the pieces matter by Jonathan Abrams. Yeah, you took mine. So so here's the deal with Jonathan, who is uh, fantastic, a fantastic writer. Uh, I'd say about... Uh, I don't know, six months ago, maybe even a little longer ago, maybe a year ago, uh, I get an email uh, just out of nowhere uh, from Jonathan, who I'd never met. And, uh, you know, I followed his, his writing. He was at Grantland. He's, he's now at uh, Bleacher Report. He was at the New York Times. Um, and I followed his writing. I thought it was great. And I get an email from him saying, hey, uh, I wanted to introduce myself. I'm Jonathan Abrams, uh, big fan of your work and would love to get together. I live down the street. Really? He literally lives like eight houses away from me. Jonathan does. <laughs> That's hilarious. And, and and here's the best part. You know how he found out? He found out because his wife was in a book club in the neighborhood and she was telling people, hey, yeah, you know, my husband's a sports writer. And like, you know, there's another sports writer in the neighborhood. I don't know if they know each other. And so she, you know, she didn't know me. Um, at the time, uh, we have now become great friends, all of us. Um, but she came home and she said, do you know a guy named Joe Posnanski? And he's like, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's kind of a big deal. And she said, I guess he lives on our street. So, 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 you know, and of course that was the same way I felt. I'm like, yeah, Jonathan Abrams. Yeah. He's kind of a big deal. And, uh, yeah. So anyway, Awesome. That book is fantastic. I'm hoping he will be our, uh, well, my uh, interview next week, in fact, oh, uh, as the book that. comes out. So very exciting. So that was going to be my, 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 mine as well. Uh, but since, uh, since you chose that one, I should probably pick another one. I'm going to pick, uh, I'm not trying to not look up the title of it because it was really, really good. Um it's a book called Little Fires Everywhere. Have you no. heard of this by Celeste Ng? Yeah, it's a novel. Uh, and I was I was drawn to it because it is about um, a family. It's, it's, it's more than a family, but a family uh, in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is literally the next uh, the next suburb over from where I grew up. And uh, the my, much better suburb than where I grew up, but but well, I don't know if it's better, but it's much more. It it, it was sort of the richer suburb, and uh, which is part of a big part of the the book. But anyway, it's a wonderful book about this family and what's underneath, and 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 you know what what you know it means to be wealthy, but also what it means to 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 want to have sort of a social conscience. And and anyway, it's fantastic. It's called Little Fires Everywhere. I'm not, I wish I read more novels. Uh, I'd love to do that. I don't get the opportunity to read as many. So when uh, a really good one comes across, I'd love to recommend it. So Little Fires Everywhere 
if if you'd like to read that, uh, I like this. By the way, I like this idea. Like we we just book club. Yeah, book club. I like book club. Let's let's see how the people feel about all it. Right. But, uh, but all right. Well, as always, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having me.